Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. This week marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and on today's show, we'll speak with Safran Shikaze, a Japanese photographer who now works in Ukraine's Donbas region. After that, we'll talk to Natalia Makohon, a Ukrainian student from that same region Safran is currently in, who now lives in Japan and is interning with us at the Japan Times. But first, I just want to reiterate that Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine a year ago alarmed and shocked many governments around the world. The New York Times kind of beautifully described it as, quote, a masterclass in dangerous and destructive leadership. If you live in Japan, it can sometimes feel like the war is very far away. Still, you've probably felt some repercussions from what's going on there, likely in the form of a higher electricity or gas bill. Russia is a resource-rich nation, and with many countries opting to impose sanctions in response to its actions, Japan included, we've seen surging inflation, commodity price spikes, and heightened economic uncertainty. The fact that we were coming out of a global pandemic that caused disruption to the supply chain networks didn't help either. While it might not feel like it, ramifications from geopolitical tensions are already on our doorsteps, calculated in the way politicians draw up budgets and roll out travel restrictions. You can also see it in public opinion polls. In a lot of our reporting, you'll see how the war in Ukraine has affected the people's views on everything from a return to nuclear power to increased defense budgets. The double whammy of a pandemic followed by war also has Japanese businesses thinking seriously about geopolitics and preparing for a scenario in which the Russian invasion of Ukraine might be replicated between China and Taiwan. While there's no clear indication this will happen anytime soon, Japan is now able to imagine it happening and is moving to prepare. Japan Times defense reporter Gabriel Dominguez has just written a piece on how the war is accelerating changes to Japan's defense posture, and he's here with me to talk about it. Hi, Gabriel. Welcome back to Deep Dive. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Gabriel, I guess let's start with a basic summary. How has the war in Ukraine affected Japan's foreign policy? Well, from the start, Japan has made it clear that it views Russia's actions as a serious violation of international law. In fact, just a few hours into the invasion, Tokyo condemned Moscow's actions as having shaken the quote-unquote foundation of our rules-based international order, and that's a position it has maintained since. Japan has also publicly denounced the killing of a large number of civilians by Russian forces. They've called it a grave breach of international humanitarian law and war crimes. On top of that, Japan has said that Russia must be held accountable for the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. What I'm trying to say is that Tokyo's main point here is that Russia must halt the invasion immediately and withdraw its forces back to Russian territory. Besides verbal condemnation, what concrete steps has the Japanese government taken? I think it's fair to say that the Japanese government has taken a number of swift and comprehensive actions to follow up on its verbal condemnation. For the most part, these measures can be divided into two parts, actions against Russia and those in support of Ukraine. Okay, what can you tell me about Japan's actions against Russia? Well, these have mostly been in the form of unprecedented economic sanctions. They include joining uh, international efforts, for instance, to freeze the Japan-held assets of Russian oligarchs and government officials. Tokyo has also frozen the assets of 11 Russian banks and their subsidiaries here in Japan. 
It has also sought to isolate Russia from the international financial system and the global economy by, for instance, helping exclude selected Russian banks from the SWIFT messaging system. Another aspect is that Japan has introduced measures to prohibit new investments in Russia. And at the same time, it has imposed sanctions on the exports of certain goods, including those that could bolster Russia's industrial capabilities. That said, there have been some exceptions, such as Japan's continued import of liquefied natural gas and its participation in the Sakhalin 2 LNG project. What's the main point of these sanctions? Well, the aim is to starve Russia of the revenue and financial resources needed to fund the war. The idea is that this would force Moscow to stop the war and retreat. Well, that hasn't happened. That's right. In fact, the invasion has now turned into what appears to be a long war of attrition. Meaning that they're simply trying to wear the other side down? Yes. However, just because Russia is doing this, it doesn't mean that the sanctions haven't at least partially worked. I think it's important to point out that every dollar that is denied to the Russian budget and every piece of equipment that is not available to the Russian military is a step that helps Ukraine and those defending it. On the other hand, what has Japan done to support Ukraine? I think both the Japanese government and the public have shown that they're genuinely concerned about the fate of the Ukrainian people. And this can be seen in a number of situations. For instance, Tokyo has provided a mix of humanitarian, financial, and non-lethal military aid to Ukraine. Can you give us some examples? Sure. So Japan has provided about $600 million in financial support and an additional $200 million in emergency humanitarian aid. It has also helped restore critical Ukrainian infrastructure, such as generators, and offered visa extensions to Ukrainian residents. Japan has also accepted about 2,000 evacuees from Ukraine and airlifted humanitarian relief items from the United Nations. How about the military aid you mentioned? That's often a sensitive issue here in Japan, right? Yeah, that's right. So from a military perspective, Tokyo has provided aid to Ukraine in the form of, say, surveillance drones, bulletproof vests, helmets, tents, and medical supplies. However, unlike the United States... Australia, and many European countries, it has not delivered weapons. That's because of Japan's current defense guidelines. However, that may change in the future. Okay. I think what's important is that these steps have not only practical, but also symbolic value. They demonstrate that support for Ukraine isn't just concentrated in Europe and North America, but extends to other parts of the world. Russia's actions have also affected Japan's defense policy, though perhaps not as directly as its foreign policy. So in what ways has defense policy changed? Well, I don't think that the war has actually changed the reform trajectory the government was on before the invasion. But it's fair to say that it has accelerated efforts to overhaul Japan's defense posture. Uh, specifically, I think it has turned the posture into a more proactive one. For instance, a year ago, Japan was already on its way to increasing defense spending, acquiring long-range missiles, and expanding security partners beyond its alliance with the United States. But these things are now happening faster. One important aspect is that when the Ukraine conflict erupted, Tokyo was quick to not only condemn Moscow's aggression, but also to link the security situation in Europe to that in Asia. How so? Well... Japan's big concern has been that a Russian victory in Ukraine could embolden China to do the same with Taiwan. That would likely trigger a regional security crisis and further tilt the balance of power in Beijing's favor. 
by making this argument, Japan has kind of convinced the public that something similar could happen on this side of the world. And as a result, people here might be more open to a more robust defense posture. So if the invasion hadn't happened, then the Japanese population could have been more concerned about what might be seen as an increase in military spending and a move away from post-war pacifism. Yes. So if the public wasn't swayed by what was happening in China and North Korea, then the Russian invasion drove home the message that security challenges are real and need to be taken seriously. I mean, the Japanese public have actually been seeing it play out on TV, and I'm sure it has left an impression on them. Okay, Gabriel, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Like Gabriel was saying, the people of Japan have responded to the invasion of Ukraine in a pretty strong way. It's come through visual support in the way of art projects in Tokyo, trains painted in the colors of the Ukrainian flag in Takamatsu, and individual donations to a relief fund totaling around 2 billion yen. That's $17 million. Safran Shikaze took his interest a step further. He's a freelance photographer who has traveled to the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine to document what's going on there. We were able to connect with him over video chat. Safran, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks for having me. Where exactly are you just now? So I'm in Kramatorsk right now, uh, which is the city in Donbass, and that's in the Donetsk Oblast. And um, Donetsk and Luhansk, as you know, are two of the several oblasts that Russia's trying to take. So what are you doing there? So when this war broke out, I decided to drop everything I had and really focus on uh, documenting the war essentially documenting the development of humanitarian corridors. And that is the theme uh, with which I've come to Ukraine. So my official status in Ukraine, which allows me to say legally, is photojournalist. I embed with as many groups as I can. I get to know as many groups as I can. And getting to know them and publishing stories about them, uh, that's part of the journalism. The part of the photography that I do, that I really focus on, is really giving those organizations that I follow the material that they can then work with in order to raise funds on their own. So a lot of people uh, allow me to hop in their car, hop in their ambulance, embed with their, their unit, etc. And so the, the whole goal was to document the entire gamut, which is all the way from fundraiser in Japan or warehouse worker in Poland, all the way to the front lines, uh, the volunteer soldier. So yeah, I'm just trying to capture that whole spectrum and then put something together into perhaps a documentary. Ah, oh, right, okay. Take me back to this time last year. Where were you, and what do you remember feeling when Russia's invasion of Ukraine kicked off? Yeah, so I was in Fukuoka, Japan, teaching English part-time, while on the side, I was spending most of my time building a school. It's a school up in the villages of Kawabaru in Japan. And that was only just beginning uh, when this war began. Then when this war did begin, February 24th, I couldn't believe that the war was happening. Definitely took me a few days for that fact to really set in. And I had been following Ukraine and the war in the Donbass since 2013. When the Maidan revolutions kicked off, I remember Vice News was covering a lot of it. Uh, some of the Japanese media was covering a lot of it. I saw a lot of this kicking off in 2013. And that's when I 
really became interested in Ukraine. And I wondered to myself, who are these people who are standing up to getting their faces smashed in during demonstrations, getting shut down by the most violent and brutal police forces? All kinds of rights were being violated. And as the Maidan revolution unfolded, the spirit of Ukrainians to stand up for a sovereign, independent country, you can tell how strong that spirit was. And I was honestly very, very moved and inspired. So I had been following Ukraine for a while. So once I realized that a full-scale invasion was happening, I immediately had to do something. But yeah, it was a, it was a gut feeling, you could say, that I had at that moment. And I've, I've followed through on it since. Had you ever done something like this before? Like headed into a dangerous situation like this? Heading into a dangerous situation? Um, if you ask my family, they, they'd say yes, many times before. Um, <laughs> But a war zone is, is something completely different to me. I've never covered a single war in my life, let alone imagining that that's not something I, I really did uh, growing up or in my professional life. Um, so sometimes I really surprise myself uh, that I'm here inside of a war, especially when I'm on the front lines with soldiers. Sometimes I wonder, wow, how did I, how did I get here? How did I end up here? So how do you get from wanting to go to actually getting there? Like, I'm sure it's not just like book a flight and go, is it? Yeah, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, I, w- I would say. But one of the advantages I had was as a Japanese citizen, you're really able to fly almost anywhere in the world. So that's the part I really didn't have to worry about getting a visa or anything like that. That being said, I didn't know if I would get stopped at the airport due to some kind of COVID test that I didn't take or any of the the really big risks that might hamper me getting there. So I really had to cover a lot of ground before leaving. And it took me about a month to really prepare everything for this long journey to Ukraine. So that meant I had to get my stuff together. I had to make sure that my gear uh, was, was ready and that I had all the gear I needed. Uh, I was looking for a, a bag that I can take to really, really wild places, perhaps a waterproof bag all of these little things. So as you're gathering all of your material, uh, you're also gathering uh, a bunch of information and contacts, like who, who do I stay with when I get there? Where do I go? So these things really, really took some time. So um, I think I booked my ticket in mid-March, I believe. And I delayed the flight by two weeks to April 10th. And that's when I flew off to Warsaw. And in Warsaw, I spent a few days and on the fifth day, I was able to enter Ukraine through a humanitarian aid dam. Can you walk us through your average day in Ukraine? Average day in Ukraine. Wow. That's, uh, that's a difficult one. I could talk to you about a slow day. A slow day would be you wake up, you figure out how to make breakfast with whatever it is that's in your fridge. And after a huge pot of coffee, I'll, I'll try to journal if I can, if I'm not running off somewhere. And... During that day, I would edit photos, start writing a story or a post. On a busy day, <laughs> on a busy day, I won't be touching my computer. I'll be out with a team. Um, someone will come pick me up, send me to a gas station somewhere where an ambulance will come pick me up. I'll roll with the ambulance. For example, two and a half hours from now, uh, I'll be heading out to Sivetsk. Uh, Sivetsk is a city. Uh, north of Bakhmut, and Sivetsk is getting surrounded, slowly surrounded again. And so 
Our hope is that the people still living in Sivirsk, the second time around that the Russians approach, they'll start realizing, okay, this is not a place to be living um, at the moment. The best thing to do is to evacuate. And um, if they feel that way, uh, we want to be ready to pick them up. And so this is sort of like a recon mission. And since we don't want to go empty-handed, we'll bring some humanitarian aid. And the reason I specifically chose Sivesk is because there's a family living in a big basement in Sivesk that I was able to meet last summer. Rumor has it that some of that family or some of the people who are living there are still there. The conditions were horrid back then. And so I really want to check up on that basement, specific basement, and the people living in it to see if an evacuation is something they're even thinking about. What have the Ukrainian people told you about how life has changed for them? From your experience, how do you feel the war is affecting them? I think the daily life for Ukrainians has changed quite drastically. I was in Kyiv just a few days ago, Kyiv and Dnipro, and in both of those big cities, when there's an air siren, a lot of the shops have to close, especially if you're a big franchise, say you're McDonald's or uh, a gas station or something like that. Um, they all have to close. They all have to kick everyone out every time there's a fire alarm. Now, if you imagine within an hour, so you'll, you'll walk into McDonald's as you're ordering, the fire alarm goes off. So you have to leave, you have to stop ordering and the fire alarm stops. So you go back in, you're like, okay, I can order now and you get your food and the fire alarm goes off again. And then you, you have to leave the premises again because theoretically, you know, everyone needs to get out, get into bunkers, etc. But if you have a population of 38 million leaving their their day to day whatevers and 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 scrambling to bunkers and basements every time there's a fire alarm, it's just there's no way a, a country can function. Actual cities and city centers and apartment buildings, as you've seen online and on the news, are are being bombarded. I, I don't know of a single Ukrainian who hasn't been affected in, in some direct way, uh, losing a family member or having a family member on the front line. A lot of people have, you know, their brother, their husband, their cousin uh, on the front, uh, their sister. Yeah, it's, it's, it's affected every single aspect of society, um, I think. With the war approaching the one-year mark, do you see an end to the fighting anytime soon? My estimation is that this war will continue for some time. It's really hard to tell exactly where Russia is in regards to their financial situation, in regards to their ability to uh, recruit new conscripts. It's, it's really hard to tell exactly. I think a military specialist uh, would, would know a lot better, but you never really know, I don't think. But from the looks of it, especially on the front line, the feeling is, wow, this war can, can last for a very long time. And Russia can keep the pressure for a very long time. That's how it feels here. And I think that's how every nonprofit should be operating here with the assumption that this war is going to continue. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't have urgency and we shouldn't be um, tackling the problems that arise immediately as they arise. But yeah, I think every organization, everyone watching and following Ukraine should probably expect an, an extended conflict. Hmm. Well, Safran, thanks for joining us on Deep Dive. I hope you stay safe out there. But thank you. I, uh, I really appreciated this interview and any opportunity that I get to really uh, bring some light to the truth here in Ukraine, I will take that opportunity. So, so thank you for that. 
Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year ago, Japan has, at last count, welcomed just over 2,000 evacuees into the country to take shelter. Note the term evacuee here. Japan has a notoriously tough refugee policy with a very narrow definition as to who exactly classifies as a refugee. Support for these evacuees and, by some extension, other refugees, has been growing in Japanese society with cafes and classes opening up in an effort to help Ukrainians who have come here for the time being. Natalia Makahon is one such evacuee. She left Ukraine in March of last year and has written about it for the Japan Times. That piece will come out this week alongside other coverage on the anniversary of the war. She's also working as an intern on this podcast. Natalia, welcome to the hot seat. Thank you, Sean. So you've written a first-person account of what it was like to leave Ukraine after the Russian invasion. Would you be able to read the first few paragraphs of your piece for our listeners? Sure. I'm at home in bed, blanketed in a thick silence. It's not a comfortable silence. I have a lot on my mind. It's February 24th, 2022. I can hear loud bangs in the distance. It could be fireworks. Then car alarms. One, two, three. I want to sleep, but the noises are too loud. Too out of the ordinary. I open my eyes and read the clock. It's 4.30 a.m. I glance out the window and I can see smoke rising from the direction of the airfield. My mother pokes her head in my room and says, Katsunya, vina pochalasya. Dear, the war has started. Another bang. This time I feel the house tremble. Uh, thank you for that. Have you been back to Ukraine since you left? Unfortunately, no. I left my hometown at the end of March, and in April there was a Russian missile attack on the railway station in my hometown, where more than 50 people died, mm. when they just wanted to evacuate and were waiting for the train. So rail service stopped until mid-autumn, and uh, I couldn't come back home because the situation was extremely dangerous, but also it was impossible. Right. You ended up heading to Poland before going to Germany by way of France. You were also traveling with your mother. How is she doing? So my mother is one of the strongest people that I know. And uh, I remember she was so upset and I felt her stress. Despite all of this, she remained incredibly focused and demonstrated the impressive level of confidence and bravery. I think it was the most difficult journey in our life. And I'm so proud of her. How do you keep in contact with her? Well, thanks uh, to messengers like Viber or Telegram, I can contact her on video. Mm. And I try to call my mom every day. But we have a time difference of eight hours. And for this reason, it's not always comfortable and possible. Right. How did you end up in Japan? Well, uh, when I was in Germany, I applied for different opportunities for students to continue my education. And... It wasn't a piece of cake because my major is TV and radio journalism and it's not so popular <laughs> abroad. Yeah, but uh, I didn't give up. And finally, I won a scholarship in Japan uh, that changed my life a uh, half year ago and helped me continue my education. Had you ever had an interest in Japan before this? To be honest, I have never been interested a lot in <laughs> Japan because it's so far from Europe. Mm. And uh, it seemed uh, to me impossible to visit uh, because of the hard and long process of visa and not to mention the expensive airfare. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, Japan has received around 2,000 evacuees from Ukraine. 
Uh, have you met many Ukrainians since arriving in Japan? I study with eight Ukrainian girls uh, at the same university, and two of them are my roommates in the dorm, and it's really great. Mm. In general, I met other Ukrainian students in Tokyo, but not a lot. Uh, but also evacuated Ukrainians uh, created groups in social media mm -hmm. uh, where we can help each other with different important or <laughs> daily routine questions. Okay, what kinds of challenges are they having with life here? I think that one of the biggest challenges is a uh, language barrier. Mm. Uh, you know, most Ukrainians don't speak Japanese and communication is really difficult. And also for this reason, finding work in Japan uh, is a complicated process uh, because if you don't speak fluently Japanese, it's really hard yeah. to find anything. What were your first impressions upon arriving here? So in Europe, Japan is seen as like the future. Mm. And I totally agree that this country is another planet. It's hard to compare Japan with other countries because it's absolutely different and unique. I guess I expected to see a lot of people, which I did it. But it was a surprise to me that uh, they were so polite. Okay. And at university, I met Mirai. Uh, she showed me Tokyo from different sides and helped me a lot with my issues and questions. And I so appreciate her. Okay, so she's a Japanese student. Yeah, Japanese students. And I met her firstly and she really helped me a lot and I'm so glad that I have a friend like Mirai <laughs> <laughs> well we'll also say thanks to uh, Mirai on behalf of the Japan Times what has been the biggest challenge being here so coming to Japan has been a great experience but it's hard to have a great time when so much horror are happening at home Mm. And every day, every hour, I read news from Ukraine. And it doesn't matter where I am, on the train, university, dorm or shop. When I try to enjoy life in Tokyo, I know my friends, Ukrainian soldiers and citizens die. Mm. This understanding kills me. And I just have to believe in our victory, continue donating and pray for every Ukrainian to stay safe. Well, Natalia, it may be under difficult circumstances, but we're very glad to have you with us here at the Japan Times. Thank you so much, Sean. If you would like to show support to the people of Ukraine, Safran was kind enough to share some tips on how to do so from Japan. He says donations to NGOs and aid groups that know how to best decide the kind of support needed on the ground is most effective, and that groups such as the Red Cross or United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees are good choices. But the Japan-based group Sakura Tohimawari is one that he works with closely. We'll put a link in the show notes. Safran adds that Ukrainians he has spoken to have expressed their appreciation for Hokaron hand warmers during the winter in particular. Elsewhere in the Japan Times, Anika Osaki Exum writes about how, as the corporate world races to find new talent, Japan's Justice Ministry is set to introduce new immigration pathways for high-income earners and elite students. And seven major electric companies have applied to the government to boost their rates. For example, the Tokyo Electric Power Company has applied to raise its rates by as much as 29.31% from June. And Hokkaido's power company has applied to increase rates by 32% from June. Kathleen Benoza has written about how you can try to stem your electricity use this summer. Production for Deep Dive is by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Natalia Makahon. And the outgoing track is by Oscar Boyd. Our theme song is by the Japanese artist 4L. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, Potsukare-sama. <laughs>